Happy New Year, everybody. It might not be happy yet, but it will be. <laughs> what we're preaching on uh, this morning here is truth you can stand on. And it, it's kind of, it's a funny world these days where it's very common to hear the phrase, live your truth, or I'm living my truth. And... Uh, Really, it's just people coming up with fancy slogans to justify their lifestyle choices. But kind of the, or maybe another statement you've heard is, you know, all paths lead to God. Or, I don't know, you just watch the news and you see one program completely contradict another program. And you're trying to figure out, oh, what's true here? What's going on? And it, it's, it gets confusing. It just, it does. And you're trying to figure out. What is the truth? What's the truth? Then, you know, there's this phenomenon that people like to throw around the word truth. Living their truth or my truth. And why that is, is because truth is a very important part of feeling safe and secure. And this thirst for truth that's present in, in every human being, that's something that God has actually put in us. This desire for truth. This desire to try to figure out what, what is really, really true. What's interesting is you can, you can see that actually the entire universe is designed in a way that points to the fact that there's a definitive truth. If you were to study like the, the various sciences, if you can go back to the time you were in high school, maybe you skipped these courses, but you know, your, your mathematics, your, your physics, biology, all that kind of stuff, kind of the whole point of science is finding the truth. And that's kind of the... All of science really hinges off that, that you, that you can study things and you can find that there's truth, that you can find that there's order in the universe. There's quite a number of, of uh, things that we found scientifically that are, we refer to as constants. That means that they're the same, they never change. For example, like the speed of light. Does it depend, you know, whether you're having a good day or a bad day, the speed of light is always the speed of light. The weight of the electron is the same across the entire cosmos. One plus one always does equal two. Now what's kind of interesting is Paul picks up on this and he, he talks about if when we look at creation that it mirrors so many qualities of God. In Romans 1.20 it says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. He's meaning that the order of the universe, all this stuff that you just see around us, that the world truly is designed well and for order, that all points to who God is. And kind of what I'm rolling with today, the theory I want to roll with today, is the same way that there are these, these constants in the realm of science and physics. These things are the same yesterday and today and forever. It's the same thing with God's law, the things that he says. Because he put all of that into motion. And what he says stands the test of time. It can't change. In every context you'll ever put it in, it's still the same. It is truth that you can stand on. Jesus said, Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus says, he's the same, or sorry, Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever. Regardless of your feelings, regardless of the circumstance, Jesus is the same. He's never changed. Matthew 24, 38 says, Jesus' words never pass away. 
You'll never find yourself in a context where God's words are useless to you, where you can't actually stand on them, where they can't bring truth. Matthew 7, 24 talks about of how we can build our life on Jesus' teaching, and it's like building your life on a rock, on a solid foundation, not the shifting sands of culture, but something that will stand the test of time. This morning, I actually want to use the Christmas story and show you how there's various people throughout that story that stand on truth. Even despite this hardship that they were facing, all the hard stuff they were going through, the context they were in, they stood on truth. So we're going to be reading from Luke 2 and Matthew 2. If you have a physical Bible, you can put your, I guess, numerous fingers in those two as we uh, kind of flip back in between them. If you're doing a digital one, I don't know how you're going to do that. But we're just going to read kind of the, the time right after Jesus was born, actually kind of right around this time when he's taken to the temple and then later when the wise men visit him. So just for some pre-context, Mary and Joseph, we kind of forget about this with Christmas, but they got a really, really raw deal. The Roman government decided there needed to be a census. Mary is super pregnant. They have to travel to the home of their ancestors across their entire nation just so they can stand and be counted and also taxed. That's basically the purpose for the census. Hey, we need to figure out how many people we got here. People are like, okay, and the reason is because we need to take more of your money. That's really what was going on there. So they have to pay a lot of money for travel expenses. Travel all the way to Bethlehem, pay a government tax. That was very unfair. So they're in a place of financial destitution. Not a great way to start a marriage. Tough, tough way to start being parents. But they didn't let their circumstance dictate their faithfulness. They stood on truth and they trusted on God. So read from Luke 2 here, verses 21 through 24. It says, eight days, later, after, eight days after Jesus is born, when the baby is circumcised, he was named Jesus, the name given him by the angel even before he was conceived. Then it was time for their purification offering, as required by the law of Moses after the birth of a child. So his parents took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. The law of the Lord says, if a woman's first child is a boy, he must dedicate him to the Lord. So they offered the sacrifice required to the law of the Lord, either a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So Mary and Joseph are fulfilling these laws that go all the way back to Exodus and Leviticus, back to the time of Moses. They're standing on the truth of Scripture. So even though that they're really poor, uh, things aren't going really well for them, they're going to stand on the truth and still honor God. So if if you were actually to look up what these laws are that they're fulfilling, so the first one's about dedicating your firstborn. um, to God, and that's actually kind of a very big theme in the Old Testament because throughout uh, pretty well all of human history up until fairly recently, it was always a big deal when you had a boy in your family. It would be like, all right, the family farm is safe. We got somebody to take on the family business, and a lot of pressure and faith was actually put into the next generation, that kid, and it was like, you know, know, we can can retire. We're going to be taking care of an old age. You know, the business is going to go on. All that, all that kind of stuff was, was, was put on this firstborn. They were often given far more of the inheritance, treated with um, you know, far more dignity and respect and all this kind of stuff than all these other kids. But if you look through the Old Testament, God consistently rails against that because he doesn't play favorites. And it's a system that is all designed on trusting in the systems of man, you know, trusting in a human being to take care of you, that things are going to be okay. 
And so God kind of has a bit of a, a power pull, a power display when he's doing this, this law that says, you know what? You know that firstborn kid that you've been waiting for, that male? I want you to dedicate him to me. He's going to be for me. He's going to be for my service. And he's, he's, he's basically teaching them right from the get-go, you need to learn that you know, the safety of your family, the, the well-being of your future doesn't ride on your kids. It's going to be from me. So he's kind of pruning them in that way. So that's kind of like a, a, a long-held law that he's trying to teach you. The future of your family is safe. Then secondly, there was a law that was just uh, kind of generally whenever you would have a kid, uh, you would go to the temple uh, for an offering. And the thing is, according to Leviticus 12.8, the offering for when you would have a kid is actually to present a lamb. But there is, there's kind of like a fine print that's in there that says, but if you're poor and you can't afford a lamb, you can, you can uh, instead substitute a pair of turtle doves or pigeons. So that it is revealing in this moment that Mary and Joseph are too, for, too poor to even afford a lamb for the sacrifice. So they went with the kind of the secondary option. They went with these turtle doves or pigeons. So what's surprising is in this circumstance, a lot of people, you know, if, if, you, if you got the, the really, like, short end of the stick, you were very frustrated um, all sorts of things were not working out for you. Generally, let's be serious here, we don't honor God often in those circumstances. We get frustrated, we get mad at him, often we withhold from him. But here they are finding a way to give to God and honor him despite the circumstance. So now I want to uh, bring out a couple points here. My points are a little bit different, I guess. I actually have eight points. Um, I'm not um, structured a little bit differently, I guess, to my than regular sermons, but going back to kind of my beginning of how there's truths that you can stand on, um, these are what I'm pulling from the context of this story that you can also stand on. So the first one is that God is worthy of honor in every circumstance. Something that's true in every context, whether things are good for you or bad for you. What is always true from the beginning of time and, well, actually even before time began, and it will always be true, is that God is worthy of honor. He's worthy of honor. Something we can never forget. And we need to live our lives according to that and stand on that. God is worthy of honor. He's worthy of honor. Worthy of honor. Secondly, God honors you when you honor him. When you walk in honor, God will honor you. You can't outgive God. So once again, Mary and Joseph, they were standing on scripture. There's a famous one that's about giving in the Old Testament here from Malachi uh, 3, verse 10. It says, bring all the tithes into the storehouse so there will be enough food in my temple. If you do, says the Lord of heaven's armies, I will open the windows of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing so great you won't have enough room to take it in. Try it. Put me to the test. It's the only time in scripture God will ever say to test him. That if you're actually faithful in your giving, he'll pour out his blessing on you. So Mary and Joseph, they knew that. And so even though their situation was terrible, they were frustrated, it was unfair, they knew that God would still bless them. They knew that God would still honor them. He would see that they were still remaining faithful and he would come through for them. So they didn't act according to their ever-changing circumstance. They act according to their never-changing God. Now, let's look at how God responded to them how he honored them. So we're going to flip over to Matthew 2 here, verses 9 through 12. Story of the wise men. It says, And the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. They went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. 
They entered the house and saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. When it was time to leave, they returned home uh, to their country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. After the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, flee to Egypt with the child and his mother, the angel said. Stay there until I tell you to return, because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. That night, Joseph left for Egypt with the child and Mary, his mother, and they stayed there until Herod's death. This fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet, I called my son out of Egypt. So little did Mary and Joseph know when they're having this, you know, this whole birth thing with their kid, dedicating him at the temple, all that kind of stuff. Little did they know that an assassination squad was being put together by the king, King Herod. And he was going to use all his power and resources to try to find Jesus and kill him. So you can't really like their chances. In the natural, this is a poor family versus the most powerful and rich guy in the nation. They didn't have the resources to fight back. They didn't have the resources to hide. And again, they just lost a bunch of their own resources, having to travel across the whole nation, having to you know, uh, pay for all the travel expenses and then you know, all the new baby expenses. Also, making matters worse, it's revealed in Revelation 12, it's not just actually Herod that's coming against them. All the kingdom of darkness is trying to chase down Jesus and kill him. So we've got the devil and his demons are actually also, they're the ones behind the scenes trying to kill baby Jesus. So things are really looking not so good for Mary and Joseph. Things are really ratcheted up against them. But God had a plan. So you entered, you got the wise men. They're from some royal court somewhere, um, some other nation. Uh, the word that's used there is magi in the Greek, um, which has a lot of meanings. Basically, they're a part of the royal court. They do a lot of different stuff. Um, they're, often they were scholars of some kind. Obviously, they were scientists. These guys were astronomers. They're looking at the stars. They're doing the math, figuring out all that kind of stuff. And somehow they would have watched some type of a cosmic story be told, uh, likely with the constellations and this amazing star. And enough that they could kind of get the message that there was a child being born in Judah that, that was the king, the Messiah that they're waiting for. There's actually a documentary on this called The Star of Bethlehem, if you want to look it up. It's very cool. But anyways, these guys might not have even been Jewish, but yet they encountered the living God through the study of science and through this, this supernatural encounter with this star. And they began to yearn to figure out, well, who is this God? Who is the one that controls the stars? Brings us to our third point, a third truth that you can stand, stand on is God is sovereign overall. Basically means he's super powerful. He's the one that sits on the throne. Do you, if you think of the story of how many moving parts there are, how many things have to line up just perfectly, it's pretty phenomenal. Really, uh, you know, all of this had to be set at the very creation of the universe. Going back to, you know, to the you know, the wise men and seeing that star, God had to, when he created the universe, kind of set all the math in motion, that star would appear at that exact moment and at that exact time from that exact viewpoint to declare this exact message. And he got, you know, he, he did all this, you know, before the foundation of the world, just so these wise men would travel from this other nation, they would, they would come and visit Mary and Joseph and they would come bearing these gifts. And just like that, they'd sudden, this family, this poor family, suddenly became wealthy enough 
to take an all-expenses-paid multi-year trip to the next nation over Egypt. And they were able to spend time there awaiting Herod's death. So try this on for size. The solution to Mary and Joseph's problem was set in motion literally at the, like at the beginning of the universe. That's how far ahead God is. That's how far ahead God is of your problems. What's also kind of neat that in, in, this, in this story is that there's this thematic um, reference to Israel in there as well. So if you know the story of Israel, they, they had spent some time in Egypt and God had to call them out of Egypt and set them free from Egypt. And you have a similar dynamic of Jesus who's like the a representation of Israel going also to Egypt as well. And so there's like a callback to like a, thou, a, a few thousand years before Jesus happening as well. So the redemption plan for Israel was set before Israel ever got itself into slavery in Egypt. Also, of course, we just know that the plan of salvation, the plan for all of humanity, was set in motion before Adam and Eve even sinned. God really connects all the dots. He has them all in place before we even realize they need to be connected. He is sovereign over all. Here's a few more things we can get from the story, a few more truths that we can stand on. Number four is that God knows your problems before you do. Number five is that God will make a way where there seems to be no way. He's had, a, he's had a, quite a head start on feeling, dealing with your problems. He's got a very long-range plan for you, and he's got it all worked out, and he's going to make a way where there seems to be no way. Six is God is far more powerful than the enemy. It's quite funny to me that you know, the, the most powerful guy in, in all of Israel, King Herod, he decided he was going to kill baby Jesus. Then you also have all the powers of darkness. They decided they were going to kill baby Jesus. Little did they know that God had a plan in place to prevent all of that literally since the foundation of the universe. He was that far ahead of them. They're not playing with the same power levels. There's a massive power differential between the enemy and God. Something to always keep in mind. God is far more powerful than the enemy. Seventh, we have God's timing is perfect. It's a hard one for us to often believe and stand on. God's timing is perfect. There's two senior citizens that are uh, they're within the birth narrative of Jesus soon after he's born. They play an important part. First one is Simeon. He's, his story is in Luke 2, verses 25 through 32. It says, At that time, there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. He was righteous and devout and was eagerly waiting the Messiah to come and rescue Israel. The Holy Spirit was upon him, and he revealed to him that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Messiah. That day the Spirit led him to the temple. So when Mary and Joseph came to present the baby Jesus to the Lord, as the law required, Simeon was there. He took the child in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, now let your servant die in peace, as you have promised. I have seen your salvation, which you have prepared for all people. He is the light to reveal God to the nations, and he is the glory of your people Israel. So Simeon was an older man, and he had seen basically his, his nation just crumble under the thumb of the Roman Empire. He'd, he'd seen so many people that, you know, maybe they grew up Jewish, but they were now you know, fallen under the, the pressure of this Roman Empire, and they were becoming pagans, worshipping all sorts of stuff. He was seeing multiple kind of rebellions and protests go on. Um, actually, within the Roman Empire, uh, Israel 
has the record basically of being the most turbulent place of any place they ever took over. And that's because uh, pretty well everything else is believes in all sorts of different gods and it meshes better with um, the Roman theology, but Israel kind of really stood out because they only believed in one God and so they, didn't, they couldn't you know, adopt all this religion that the Romans were trying to bring in. But anyway, Simeon is seeing his beloved nation in just sheer and utter turmoil. He's seeing you know, the people he loves, his countrymen, just be under this severe subdu- sub- subjugation. He's seeing people get killed, innocent people jailed. The economic situation is terrible. The taxes are just extremely oppressive. There's political turmoil. Uh, and he's also just seeing so much immorality um, all, o- all over society. It's just become rampant. But there's one sliver of hope. God said to him years and years ago, you're not going to die before you see the Messiah. You're not going to die before you see my goodness. You're going to see the solution to this problem before you die. And time and time went on, and he had to watch things get worse and worse and worse, saying, God, where are you? But he would hold on to that belief that God said, I'm going to see the Messiah, so I'm going to stand on that truth. I'm going to see hope. And he held on to that truth until one day the Messiah did show up at the temple. And he got to have this phenomenal encounter, one of the very first people to meet the Messiah, one of the very first people to meet Jesus. And I can't imagine the relief that washed over him that finally the day has come. Finally, I get to see this child of promise. Finally, the tide is turning. Finally, things are changing. And then he was, he was ready to die in peace. And he, he finally had this hope for the future. See, God's timing is perfect. His prayers, Simeon's prayers, they were answered at the right time. And the wait was worth it. It's a hard thing to believe when you're in a season of waiting that the wait will be worth it, but God's timing is perfect. Our eighth point is that God redeems. Another, another senior citizen that was in, in this story, often not talked about, often forgotten, also got to meet baby Jesus a few days after he was born. Uh, from Luke 2, 36-38, her name's Anna. So Anna, a prophet, was also there in the temple. She was the daughter of Phineal, from the tribe of Asher, and she was very old. Her husband died when they had been married only seven years. Then she lived as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, but stayed there day and night, worshiping God with fasting and prayer. She came along just as Simeon was talking with Mary and Joseph, and she began praising God. She talked about the child to everyone who had been waiting expectantly for God to rescue Jerusalem. So Anna also had a, a pretty raw deal lost her husband soon after marrying him. And at that culture of the time, they didn't really do the um, remarry thing very much. And, uh, and really throughout most of human history, if you were a widow, you were in deep, deep trouble. Very, very hard to be a widow. Um, often, again, throughout most of human history, your only option was to sell yourself into prostitution. And, you know, during this time of Jesus, it was, you know, the taxes are outrageous, there's rampant poverty. It's especially scary to be a widow. And Anna didn't just have to be a widow for just a few years, for 60 years. 60 years, basically, to live at the bottom rung of society in severe financial destitution. It's a raw deal. That sucks. But rather than allow her heartbreak her questions, her doubt, her sense of injustice, and you know, this feeling of unfairness, this hurt, this pain, to push her away from God, to bog her down, to even send her into a life of immorality. 
Instead, she leaned into God like never before to the point that she never left his temple. She dedicated her entire life, even after getting that seemingly really raw deal, she dedicated her entire life to serving God in the temple every day, worshiping him, serving him. Praying, fasting. And then she gets to meet baby Jesus. She gets to meet the Messiah, and she's so excited. She gets to have this incredible experience with God. She gets to meet the one that's going to put an end to suffering, who's going to wipe every tear away. It's the norm for people when, they, when we experience heartbreak to actually run in the opposite direction from God often. We get mad at him. We say, how could you let this happen? Many people leave the church over heartbreak, over disappointment, or even just the faith entirely. Anna had every reason to do that. She went through some tough stuff. But instead of running away from God, she ran to him. And then she spent a life faithfully honoring God she was completely taken care of for over 60 years. God saw her dedication, her faithfulness, her service, and he blessed her. And at the very end of her life, she had this incredible, special encounter by being part of the, the crew to basically dedicate Jesus and bless him as a baby boy. So in conclusion this morning, really the point of these stories is that they, they, they really exemplify that despite your circumstance, there is truth that you can stand on. Despite the chaos that's around you, despite the context, there's truth that can bring you peace. Scripture is it's just filled with these truths that can bring freedom to your life. John 8.32 says, And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And we can stand on this truth as sure as we know that the sun's going to rise tomorrow. It can be an anchor to us in the storm. They are unchanging, immovable truths, just like one plus one always equals two. We can remember that God is worthy of honor in every circumstance. God honors you when you honor him. God is sovereign over all. God knows your problems before you do. God will make a way where there seems to be no way. God is far more powerful than the enemy. God's timing is perfect, and God redeems. You know, as we come into this new year, I believe that we should actually spend some time to figure out what is the truth that we're going to each individually stand on, and even corporately as a church, what's the truth that we're going to stand on in this new year? What's that truth that I'm going to stand on that's going to bring freedom to my life despite whatever I face in this next year? What's going to be my anchor in the storm? What am I going to know that I know that I know that I know that's never going to change? That I can hold on to? That can bring me joy? That can bring me peace? I just had kind of the thought right before I came up here, if I, you know, 2023, what would it be like if we all found 23 truths in Scripture, 22 things, 23 things I'm going to stand on for this year, 23 things I'm going to believe for, 23 things I'm going to declare over my life, 23 things I'm going to memorize so I can just begin to quote them when I'm in the middle of a storm. And I say, my God is faithful. He's sovereign over all. He knows my problems before I do, et cetera, et cetera. What a tremendous peace that could bring to our life. So I'm just going to end in prayer. And, and I encourage you, yeah, throughout this, throughout this week, if, if, if this is just kind of hitting home in your spirit, you know, take some time with that. Maybe you write down you know, those 23 things that are going to stand on, 23 things 
that could be an anchor to you this next year. 23 things that can bring truth and freedom to your life. So dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this congregation. Thank you for these people that came to honor you on the very first day of the year that put you first. God, as your word declares that when, you, when we honor you, you honor us. And so we just pray, God, that you would just pour out your blessings upon these people here. God, I pray that faith is going to arise as we've gone through some pretty uh, tough stuff these last couple of years. That instead, that there's going to be this, this faith that surpasses understanding and this peace that surpasses understanding. And as we look ahead and there's so much out there that's just unknown. We don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. Five minutes from now, five hours from now, we don't know. But God, I pray that we'd have a faith and an expectancy that the tides are changing. That there's shifts that are going to happen in our life. That there's freedom that's going to happen in our life. God, and as, as the enemy tries to reattach some things, to try to bring back some hurt, some pain, some discouragement, some despair, I pray, God, that in this new year, we're going to fight better than we've ever fought before. We're going to have a, an ability to repel the strategies of the devil as we wear the full armor of God. God, I pray that these declarations of truth, these declarations of Scripture, that people will develop will be like that sword of the Spirit that can cut through all the lies of the enemy. And it, it'll serve to be truth that we can stand on. That we can be in all sorts of different circumstances. We can be in all sorts of different stress. And we can have peace. We can have freedom. God, I pray for breakthrough for this congregation as well. There's actually going to be, I pray God, there's actually going to be moments where they're going to be surprised with themselves. They'll be facing battles that are familiar to them, that they've been through before, but all of a sudden they're going to realize something's different, something's shifted. I'm winning when I used to be losing. God, we pray this is going to be a year of new anointing, new release of giftings. People are going to begin to walk in their destiny. They're going to break through, uh, through the shackles that the enemy has you know, tried to put on them to hold them back. They were made to walk in freedom. They were made to walk in strength. They were made to walk in peace. So God, as we stand on the rock of ages, the unchanging God, the one that's the same yesterday and today and forever, the one who is always good, would you just fill us today, God, with your spirit? You'd fill us just with an encounter of you today. We would start this year afresh and anew. We would start it with hope. We would start it with peace. We would start it with strength. We'd start it with freedom. We'd start it with excitement. We'd start it with ex an expectancy. An expectancy. In your name we pray. Amen.